First of all, I thought I'd start off with a few reflections before we got to the main part of what I wanted to talk about tonight, which is patience. Um, the actual term used is actually two, um, either patience or forbearance. is used particularly in Shantideva's text, the Bhattacharya Avatara, in fact the occurrence of forbearance there's many more than the word patience, although the chapter title is one of patience. So that's what I really want to talk about tonight. But I wanted to pass come a few reflections on about the Buddhist path in general and our relationship to things like time, for example, which I think is quite important to understand. Because in Thinking through the path and our relation to the path, then we also have to think through our relationship to time as well, particularly in regards to our own personal history. As I think to somebody earlier on today, that you are, if you like, embodied time, because what you are as you sit before me and as I sit before you is nothing but all in one moment our past, our present and our future in one moment, here, right now you are the product of that past with all of its narrative and that is your present, sitting here as we sit here, we're all products of our past, our histories our traumas, our joys, everything that's happened to us is sitting here, right now. And, bearing in mind we had this discussion about karma last night, that this past, sitting here in my present, will become my future. So my past and my present and my future are all here, right now. What an onerous responsibility, you all look so serious. <laughs> But it is, isn't it? What a tremendously onerous responsibility. Here is your future. It's right here now. Nowhere else. It's not out there in some distant time that hasn't arrived yet. It's sitting with you right now. <laughs> and the question is, what are you going to do with it? <laughs> That's the question. What are you going to do with it? Are we going to be locked into the narrative of the past. Yeah. We had a little bit of discussion about it the other night, but I really wanted to kind of bring it up again because I think it's so important. Because we can be so easily locked into the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. There's a lovely start to a novel, some of you might have read it, I don't know. Um, a work by somebody called Jeanette Winterson, who's a fairly contemporary feminist novelist. And at the beginning of uh, one of her books, I think it's called Sexing the Cherry, um, she says, I wake up in the morning, I tell myself which, uh, and I say to myself, which story should I tell myself? The one about the happy childhood or the one about the unhappy childhood? <laughs> <laughs> because depending on the story you're going to tell yourself, depends on how the day is going to come out. <laughs> And as you can see, that we can so easily evoke a narrative 
for ourselves into which we get hedged by whether it's the unhappy story or the happy story. So there's kind of choice in the narratives that we choose to live by. And so many of us, of course, are locked into the narratives of the unhappy life, the unhappy stories. Now, it's not to dismiss people's traumas and problems and everything else, but it becomes a self-repeating, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that we will have unhappy lives if we tell ourselves continuously unhappy stories about our past. And so in this being here with your future, in the present, right now, it means perhaps reframing or dropping your narrative. Because otherwise, the karma which is associated in the narrative will continue to play itself out. So the choice lies in your hands at this moment nowhere else. And as you probably notice, and again I think it's, yeah, forgive me if I'm repeating, but in some ways I'm not going to be apologetic about it, because I think these things have to be said again and again and again, sometimes it doesn't sink in, is that we all so easily slip back into repeating narratives for ourselves, in telling ourselves stories about where we've come from, where we are, and perhaps where we're going. But in telling ourselves these stories, we hem ourselves in to particular patterns of behaviour, and we end up fulfilling the sad, often, narratives that we relate for ourselves. And the other thing, again, something I've said, is if we don't come into a correct relation with time, it's particularly pressing in relation to the Buddhist path, is that we will always put off till tomorrow what we can do today. We will always do it. We notice how we do it. It's something we fall into so easily. We're saying, oh, let's do it tomorrow. Plenty of time for meditation, plenty of time for, for practicing. And of course, as you know, there's one big question mark hanging over it continuously. And we don't have to get morbid about it, but it's called mortality, finitude. There might not be a tomorrow at all. In the Zen Mahayana tradition, in some particular forms of it, they constantly remind themselves of this impermanence by when they go to bed at night they turn their bowls upside down just in case somebody else has to use it in the morning. Just to remind them that they, eh, chances are, they might not survive the night. Within Tibetan Buddhism, it becomes even, um, well, some people in the West they find it grotesque, but they continuously remind us of impermanence by making ritual objects, sometimes out of bits of human bodies, such as bones, for example, they make trumpets out of. They make drums. There's an interesting little drum that they use sometimes in Tibetan ritual called the Dhamma, which actually is Shiva's drum. Now, the ones you see in the West are nice and sanitized because they're usually made out of two pieces of wood, but in Tibet they're being made out of two craniums <laughs> covered with skin. 
And this was to remind you of the urgency to reach enlightenment. So when you rattle the drum, it was to bring you back to the awareness of the urgency required to reach awakening. Tibetan Buddhism is replete with imagery and symbolism which is about impermanence, about finitude, to keep on reminding us. Back in 1992, I don't know if anybody saw it, any of you saw it, but there was a wonderful exhibition of Tibetan art in the Royal Academy in London. It was the biggest collection of Tibetan art that's ever been assembled in the West. It came from all over the world. And they actually had some resident Tibetan monks in there. What were they doing? They were making a mandala. What were they making a mandala out of? Sand. Coloured sand. What did they do when they finished making the mandala? Well, they perform a ceremony and then tip it in the river. They make these enormous sculptures, sometimes half the size of this wall, for example, in the monasteries in Tibet and in India. They're called toruma, which are offerings, sculptures. What are they made out of? Butter. Clarified butter. Mind you, I must say, they do feed it to the buffaloes afterwards. They must have a horrific cholesterol problem, I think. (laughs) 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 They make ritual things out of deliberately transient material in order to continuously bring us back to this awareness that time for us is not endless. Finitude is always there as a question mark over our daily, daily lives. Vastly important when we're thinking about our own relationship to time, because often, particularly when we're younger, we think of time as being this endless road that stretches out ahead of us, that hasn't arrived yet, and all the possibilities that I might engage in. Just remember, death is the end in this life, anyway, of all your possibilities. Now, one doesn't have to go around morbidly brooding about this fact with a long face, thinking, well, I'm going to die. (laughs) What we do is, we bring ourselves back just to that awareness that death might take all of this away from us. And if one takes the classic formulation, of course, within traditional Buddhism, you don't know what destination you're going to. You know, they say it's extremely rare that you get a fortunate human rebirth. And this is why the concentration, remember I went through the six realms with you. The six realms, you know, the fortunate human rebirth is fortunate. And it's rare. It's like a precious gem that one doesn't want to squander or waste. And so when we think of our temporality, when we think of our past, our relationship to time, don't see the future as that which is out there. The future is now, right in this moment. And it might mean radically restructuring your narrative around this present moment. Now part of this, of course, is about acceptance 
of who and what we are in this moment. For us to move forward, there has to be an unveiling and uncovering of who and what we are, an acceptance of it. One might even say, for example, an unconditional love for all our mistakes, of which I'm sure most of us have made many. I think in my life I've made many, many, many mistakes. But one has to learn to even love the mistakes from what you possibly might have learned from them. And so when we sit here, our past, our present, our future, is this moment, and that is why this moment is important, and why in Mahayana's tradition they have this idea, of course, that if it all comes together in this moment for us, there can be awakening in this moment. I'm sure many of you know the story of the foundation of Zen Buddhism, or Chan actually, with the Buddha not speaking of our discourse to Kashyapa, but picking a flower and handing it to him. And the Buddha smiled, and Kashyapa in that moment is awakened. So the discourse without words. So it happens in the moment by somebody being completely there. Now when we think of our own relation to what we do in ordinary everyday life, how often, and this is a question, I'm not going to answer it because I can't answer it for you, I can only answer it for myself, is how often are you there? You know, is there anybody at home? <laughs> because so often we are back in the past, wallowing in the past. And the past might have been two hours ago. And particularly, and this is moving into where I want to talk, what I want to talk about tonight, particularly in our relation to the hurt that others, the wrongs that others have done to us, holding on to what has gone, what has passed attached to it. So we're still coming up with these themes of relinquishment and renunciation as well. Attached to what's gone in the past, rather than being there in the moment. That moment is an empty moment for most of us. It's not full at all. Because we are usually in past or future, thinking about what we're going to do or what we've done. What's been done to us and what I'm going to do. And so very rarely are we there. Very rarely are we there in those simple tasks that we daily have to perform. So part of this awareness of the time that we live is awareness that brings us back into the moment. But it's not a kind of empty present. It's the present which is full of our past and our future. People think that you know, living in the present is kind of the abandonment of past and future. It isn't. Our past and future is right here, as I say, right now, sitting on this cushion at this present moment. So, to move forward, we have to grasp. And I don't mean that in the 
kind of technical way that Buddhism often uses it, that we have to seize that moment which is our past and our present and our future. And so time isn't a linear thing which stretches out behind us and stretches out ahead of us. It's right here in this moment. Now, various other traditions, not just the Tibetan tradition, for those who are perhaps not so interested in Tibetan Buddhism, but Dogen, the great Japanese master who founded Soto Zen, you know, talks about this a lot in his major workshop against it. But living time, he calls it being time, that you are that, that is awakening, being time. That awakening is not out there as some distant thing. And that's the way we often see it. it. I mean, I often see sometimes popular books on Buddhism, even sometimes the traditional teachings, and, and they look very strangely like a route march from unawakening to awakening along a very straight road and don't fall off the road (laughs) and so it kind of has this linearity to it whereas what these traditions the Tibetan tradition with Mahamudra practices and the Dzogchen teachings and Tantra and all sorts of other aspects of Tibetan Buddhism are trying to make us aware of as well as Chan and Zen is that awakening is in this moment if you're alive to the moment, if there is this complete coming together of your future, your present, and your past in this moment. If we don't do that, then we carry our past around with us. We don't utilise it, we don't move forward from it, we carry it as baggage with us. There's an amusing story, which I think I'll relate to you. Amusing story about two monks. Some of you might have heard this, but two monks standing on a riverside, and a lady comes up and she wants to cross the river. You know, have heard this one? Yeah. It's a wonderful story because it really shows you how we can continue to carry the past with us. One monk, the, the lady says, I'd like to cross the river, but I can't get across. And one of the monks says, Okay, hop on my back, I'll carry you across. And he carries her across, and they both eventually, both the monks cross. And one monk says to the other, I can't believe you did that. You've just broken all your vows, you know, about touching a woman. Because you know, there's strict monks and that. And he goes on about this for mile after mile after mile, saying, I can't believe you did this. <laughs> You've broken your vows. He said, I left the woman at a riverbank. You're still carrying her with you. <laughs> so... This is how, basically, we can carry things with us, continuously. Things that have happened to us, we carry with us all the way through. Now, that's the preamble, by the way. (laughs) Now, to come to what I really want to talk about this evening, which which is forbearance, patience, as it's called. The word in Sanskrit is kashanti. And it's cognate term kashama, which is forbearance. Here. Well, when Shantideva, and I think I'll mention Shantideva particularly in relation to this, because it's within the Bodhichara Avatara, within this main text, which is basically a training for the Bodhisattva, is we come to this third paramatā, this third perfection, 
that one has to develop. Remember, by this time we should have developed generosity and morality. But, Shanti David says, even if you have developed generosity and morality, you can blow it all if you haven't got patience. Because the absolute antithesis of patience or forbearance for him as for others who follow later is something I'm sure we're all familiar with called anger. Anger is the absolute opposite of forbearance. Now in the Buddhist tradition, and this is often a gauntlet that's thrown down, I think, through our Western ways of thinking, particularly those which have now come up through contact with psychotherapists and psychoanalysis and everything else, is that in Buddhist terms, and I'm going right back to the early texts here, anger, the Buddha says, is never justified. Not just occasionally it might be okay. It's sometimes all right. He just says, anger is never, let me underline the never, justified in any situation. Anger is a species of hatred. Isn't that the expression of anger, all the inner experience? Particularly the expression. Particularly the expression of anger. Ultimately, of course, even the, the thought of anger. Saying, let's go right back to the early text. I just want to quote you something. The most anthologized, the most translated piece of Pali text there could possibly be. It's not a terribly good translation, but if anyone could find it in your library, <laughs> which is at uh, Gaia House, which is the Dhammapada. It's an anthologized work, really, of bits of sayings out of the rest of the Pali canon. And this is what the Buddha says. It's the first, for those who want to go away and look at this later, it's basically the first part of the Dhammapada. And after having said, I might as well read you the part all the way through to the bit I want to really quote you, which is really germane to what I'm saying. We are what we think. Having become what we thought, like the wheel that follows the cart pulling ox, sorrow follows evil thoughts. And joy follows a pure thought. Like a shadow faithfully trailing a man, we are what we think, having become what we thought. How will hate leave him if a man forever thinks, he abused me, he hit me, he defeated me, he robbed me? Will hate ever touch him if he does not think, he abused me, he hit me, he defeated me, he robbed me? There is only one eternal law, Hate never destroys hate, only love does. I could stop there, by the way. <laughs> I think it's fairly eloquently said what is really being said in terms of patience in Chantadeva and the third of the Pantar. Hate is obviously one of the three poisons. Anger is the derivative of it. Irritation is yet another minor form of aversion or hatred. 
Now, if we think about our own lives, what is the major source of irritation and anger? One word springs to mind. It's called, the world would be fine if it wasn't for people. <laughs> Another word, coming back to last night, you know, when I mentioned Jean-Paul Sartre, no experts. Hell is other people. For us, in Sankara. And Sankara is very hellish. When we are basically finding others simply irritant to our way of being. So that's the way we dwell in the world, often, constantly in irritation at what others do. And then, of course, there is the they abuse me, robbed me, hurt me, all those kind of accusations against others. Coming back to the early part, which was, I said was the preamble of some simply reflections, really this is related to that. Yeah, this constantly encapsulating ourselves within a narrative of irritation, anger and hatred. It's always easy, isn't it, to find others irritating. Because we dwell in a world together. We live certainly in Britain, and not in other countries, but even more so in some countries, in very close proximity with others who can be this constant source of irritation for us. Yet, most of what we find irritating, I don't know if you thought about this, this actually is related to something that's not particularly within Buddhism, but within Stoicism, is actually what most people do, they don't do to irritate us. They don't do it to make us annoyed. So when your next door neighbour is furiously hammering a nail into the wall, he's not doing it to irritate you. What he's doing it to do, what he's doing is possibly trying to put a nail in the wall to hang a picture up. Now just think of the gentle way of reframing that. What that person is doing is not done to irritate you. It's not done to annoy you. Somebody like yourself simply trying to get on with life. That is all. It's the dukkha of irritation lies here in our own mind. So it comes back to us in that form. Now, Shantideva talks specifically about forbearance arising in three ways, three forms of forbearance that we have. The first that we should develop is forbearance in the face of Dukkha itself. Even when we set foot, as we know, on the path of meditation, if you're just doing meditation, or even the path of the Dharma, of Buddhism, if one is trying to practice that, problems don't go away. Dukkha doesn't go away. In fact, as I often say to some, that actually 
stepping foot onto the Dharma path actually increases the dukkha <laughs> a lot of the time. It doesn't make it go away at all. In fact, you suddenly have this wider vision. And so there seems to be a lot more of it around than you often had before. And the other thing we have to realize, of course, until we gain awakening, there is going to be no cessation of dukkha. It's only with awakening, it's only when we wake up and drop all these things like looking for permanence in that which by its very nature is impermanent and is going to change. Looking for happiness in things which are not going to deliver it and never ever could because they are impermanent. Looking for, well let's use the one we talked about you know, on the third night I was here, when we were together, of looking for self, essence, intrinsic existence, within things that don't possess it. So if we're continuously doing that, and some of it's so subtle, so, so subtle, not obvious, just in those kind of just little mental projections that we make, about things, the assumptions that we make, just in ordinary life. I'm not talking about anything wildly metaphysical here, but just an ordinary day-to-day existence, the kind of unexamined assumptions which are there in our daily behaviour. Such as, as I say, looking for puns, looking for happiness and things that can't deliver. As a consequence, of course, of all of that, then, until we waken up to that, until we really, really take it on board, not just intellectually, because as I've said to you before, you know, none of these ideas are difficult to understand. They're kind of convoluted ways we can go through them and make them difficult if you really want to. <laughs> but none of them are that difficult in, in, yeah, in their quality to understand. But they're immensely, immensely difficult to take on board in a practical sense. And by a practical sense, I mean emotionally. If, if I was going to give you an analogy, it's like somebody saying, yes, I know smoking's bad for me. <laughs> but continuing to do it. Because it's remained as an intellectual idea. Of course I know it's bad for me. Again, with death, isn't it? and I'm putting it in another sphere. Of course, we all know we're going to die. But there's a little voice going, Not me! <laughs> Inside, usually. And so we kind of distance ourselves through the intellectuality. Just by the mere intellectual understanding, we distance it from us. We never really take it on board. It never gets close. It's kind of holding it at bay. By saying, oh, Of course I understand. But it's not an embodied understanding. It's not an understanding that's really emotionally rich, hasn't become hard felt, doesn't make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up when you hear it, that you know, death is an ever-present reality and that things are impermanent. In other words, it's what happens to others not to me, often. 
So really, really taking that on board is to gain awakening, to really see it, to live it, to act it, day to day. That is awakening. And until that happens, then of course, we are going to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, as Hamlet says. They're going to continue to happen to us. So how do we deal with it? Well, Shantideva and others that follow him says it's only through patience. Developing a quality of patience about the things that happen to us. Some things we can deal with, others we can't. Others are so deeply embedded in our nature at this unawakened stage that we will continue to produce the victims. So what do I do? Do I continue to rail against them? Get angry every time something happens to me? Or do I patiently wait for things to change? So forbearance here and patience is knowing that things can be otherwise but at this moment they're not. And so we have to look at them with a great deal of patience and not get angry and not get irritated that things haven't changed and perhaps I ought to link this to something we all do certainly while we're here which is sitting practice meditation have you ever noticed the irritation that arises for example when things don't change the way we want them to or we don't get what we expect we're going to get out of any given session of sitting. It's called expectation. And there's probably a pile of them outside that door at the moment. Expectations that really ought to actually be left at the door, (coughs) not brought into the room. And if I was going to make a, a statement about expectations and why it gives rise to irritation and anger sometimes, and even possibly thinking, oh, I'll give this up, it's completely useless trying to do this. Is because expectation is the death of what is. In expectation, we don't actually see what happens because the expectation looms so large over what we're doing that we don't actually see what happens at all. So if I sit here, for example, and I take just a very simple samatha practice, you know, which is very statement that sort of sets us up, doesn't it? You know, samatha is calming practice. <laughs> you laugh. Well, I know you've been there. <laughs> calming practice. What happens in those meditation calming practices? There's not a lot of calm around usually. Is there? There's a lot of chatter, there's a lot going on. Now, if our expectation is placed so greatly, then I can actually get quite irritated at all this chattering going on. Yeah, I expect it to be calm. That's what it says, I find here. <laughs> and when I signed up for this course, it says calm, <laughs> and I haven't got it. Yeah. And remember, we in the West are under this great um, 
almost ethic really is okay we might not be paying for it in exactly the same way but we often do when we come to things like retreats and meditation courses and all sorts of things but we pay for it we pay for it with our time don't we we sit here and we expect something to be delivered at the end of it because I paid for it with my time the kind of time is money syndrome here we're back to time by the way But I'm doing this and I expect something at the end of it. And if I don't get it, then I'm dissatisfied. Wonderful synonym for dukkha. Yet, we miss possibly what has happened. In that expectation, we've missed watching this wonderful performance of what we call monkey mind. It puts on such a wonderful display. I often say, you know, why bother to have a television, you know? Why bother to watch soap operas? You know, it's all there. The greed, hatred and delusion (laughs) that's displayed on your television screens, it's all in there. We only have to shut your eyes and it manifests itself. And it puts on a wonderful display, continuously. And it objects like hell, your mind, to being, you know, by the attempt to concentrate, by the attempt to calm it. The ego puts up a a tremendous struggle (laughs) to stop itself from being seen as completely vapid, completely empty. It's a great charlatan. It'll put on a massive display of struggle before it gives up. Yet, in all of that, if we're just sitting and we expect and the expectation is not delivered, irritation, anger arises. Often. I'm making general statements here, so you have to examine this against your own experience. And so the opposite of that is to drop, again, renunciation, we can't get away from it, I'm afraid, is to drop the expectation. To move into the what is happening. Yeah. I'll tell you a funny story about expectation actually. There's actually a monk friend of mine who was in Switzerland years ago, back in the late 70s. And he said that he was being practicing meditation for years and years and years, going right back to the 60s. And uh, he'd ordained in the very early 70s as well. And he thought it was about time he got a bit of awakening. That was his expectation. And he said he was sitting there one night in Switzerland doing his practice with his eyes closed and he said these wonderful lights started to appear in front of his eyes while he was sitting there doing his practice and he thought to himself any moment now (laughs) 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 it's going to happen the big one (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then he said he sat there for a bit longer and the lights continued flashing away and he said he started after about half an hour of this or something but he felt it was half an hour so he said he started to get rather irritated that nothing else had happened <laughs> but all he was getting was these lights flashing in front of his eyes and he said he sat there for a lot longer 
And the light still kept going. By this time, he was really quite angry. <laughs> but he wasn't going to get this awakening. He said, oh, to hell with it. He opened his eyes and found out there was an electrical storm going on in the mountain. <laughs> so expectation <laughs> can lead to anger and irritation. Whereas the opposite, patience, grounds us in the what is. Now after what is is dukkha, then we have to be grounded in the dukkha, in seeing it as dukkha, and seeing it as unsatisfactory, distressing, anxiety provoking, and also remember all of those little minutiae of life which are the irritants. Not the big things. Remember I described it the other night as when we look at the word, when Dukkha is translated as suffering, we hear it at the Richter end of the scale. Yeah, this is the massive tragedy, the horrendous existential problem of old age, sickness and death that the Buddha talks about. But Dukkha has this other end to it, which is much, 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 much more pervasive. The tragedies happen to us, no doubt, all of us. We all lose loved ones at some point in time. We all age. We will all die. Yet, it's the minutiae of experience which is the grind, isn't it? When you think about our day-to-day, it's the minor, minor irritations. Day in, day out, day in, day out which really, really cause the problem for us. As I often describe it, I might have done, I can't remember now, but as one of Dalai Lama's translators, one of Dalai Lama's tutors said to me, you know, it's like rubbing your arm slowly against a brick wall. It's not like being stabbed in the back, that's dukkha as well, but this is much more of our experience, it's like slowly rubbing your arm against a brick wall. And most of the time it doesn't feel that painful, does it? It's the minor irritations, as I say, that occur in daily life. I joke about it in saying, really, this is what dukkha is for you. It's not getting the biscuit or the chocolate that you wanted, or somebody's brought you the wrong flowers. Those are the basic realities of dukkha for most of us, but the tragedies happen occasionally particularly in the Western world, if it's in the Eastern world, often the tragedies are much more happening on a daily basis. But for us in the Western world, in our more coveted existences, then it's the minor irritation. And it's that irritation which, in a sense, grinds us down. The day-in, day-out experience. And the one thing about, and I love the analogy, I think it's a wonderful analogy, of rubbing your arms slowly against brick walls, because it's not painful. It's the repetition that makes it painful. Doing it day in, day out. That's where in the pain lies. So for most of us, perhaps, the feeling tone behind much of life is one of constant irritation. It's not of hatred. 
sometimes it's of anger, but I think very, very few of us feel out and out hatred for things or people. We do get angry from time to time, but they're kind of explosive events, and they're mostly events that we know about when they happen. So the most constant, prevalent feeling tone was all, perhaps, as I suggest, is this feeling of irritation just having our fur rubbed up the wrong way. Just like cats. And things all people are so irritating. The things they do to irritate me. (laughs) They're doing it to me. (laughs) Notice the me embedded right in the heart of it again. And so that is what's meant by developing patience. Moving away from the irritation. Moving into another space entirely. Another way of being with it. Another way of holding the constant vicissitudes of life which are daily going to play themselves out. You know, for example, one of the expectations we might get even when we go on meditation retreats if you have happened to live in monasteries and things like this, you expect one thing, quiet. But you don't get it. Mm-hmm. There's a lovely story in, in Genon's Tibetan tradition about the monk who couldn't stand the noise of the monastery. Any of you have ever been or visited Tibetan monasteries will know that they're tremendously noisy places. I mean, Forget your peace and quiet. They're absolute cacophonies usually. I mean, I used to live in a monastery where I used to have about seven or eight monks walking outside, out, up and down outside my room from about eight o'clock at night till midnight, memorising. And the way to memorise is to recite it out loud, again and again and again. And all eight of them were doing different texts. <laughs> And so they'd be walking up and down outside making this noise continuously. So forget the peace and quiet. I mean, for the three and a half years I lived in a certain monastery, I went to bed with earplugs <laughs> because it was so noisy. So there's a story about a monk who lives in one of these situations and he takes himself up into the Himalaya to try and get some peace and quiet but ends up going back to the monastery complaining he couldn't get any peace and quiet up there because the birds <laughs> were making a noise. Now, it strikes me, you know, when I heard the, the chorus of the, of the crows earlier on, there is no such thing as absolute peace and quiet. So the birds themselves, the natural phenomena, can become irritant. And when we hear just sounds around us of people doing things as they inevitably have to do, it's not there to irritate you. Now, I'm going to come to one other aspect. As, he said, as the text says, actually Chanter David's text says, you should venerate your enemies as Buddhas. You should venerate them in the same way, because they teach you what it's all about. And so, for those of you who know the story of Tibet, the Chinese, when the Dalai Lama becomes his greatest teacher, he has to learn so much from 
the presence of the Chinese and the Chinese invasion and the brutality accorded towards his country. And so for all of us, rather than people being irritants, we should thank them as our teachers. Even if what they do is unpleasant to us. So you can see this is a complete, again, reorientation of our mind. Taking the same phenomena and seeing it in a completely different way. And this is very, very typical of the Buddhist path, to take the phenomenon and turn it around, to sort of deconstruct it, and show actually the problem lies not out there, but in here. The problem lies with me, not with you. And that is the great teaching, that we can all learn from each other, because we all can be irritants to each other. Because we are in this world together, in this interconnected fashion. So that's an enormous leap, isn't it? To change our mental perspective away from they hurt me, they robbed me, they beat me attitude. And this is perhaps opening ourselves up to Maitri, to love. Loving the enemy. I was very struck once, actually, this is completely outside of the, um, the realms of Buddhism, but it's, some of you might know the work of the philosopher Wittgenstein. It was just recorded in a conversation that somebody had with him in the 1940s, when somebody said to him um, something like, you know, your fellow countryman, who's an Austrian as well, your fellow countryman, look at the horrific things Hitler is doing. And apparently Wittgenstein said, yes, but look at the tremendous amount of suffering he must be going through to inflict this. And so, our enemies themselves, even those who inflict the most horrific injuries, are themselves undergoing tremendous pain and suffering. Now this is not, by the way, again, I keep adding this on these evenings, to justify what people do. You can still not condone the act. And certainly one wouldn't want to condone any of the acts in this case. But that still doesn't rob us of the compassion, the love that can be extended to the perpetrator of those acts. That's what the Buddha is meaning by hate is only overcome by love here. To do that requires tremendous patience, a tremendous reorientation of the mind, which in our unawakened state we find very, very difficult to do. Our very, you know, when we think of our institutions in the West, as I mentioned the other evening, our very justice systems themselves are more bent on retribution than they are on rehabilitation or reformation. It's a retributive system of justice. It looks for penance than the other. And so, the Buddhist perspective, coming back to this, is one that has to treat even the evildoer, and I use the word hesitantly, kindly. have to treat them with love and not with hate. 
And that requires patience. It requires forbearance too. I'm going to finish there. And uh, over to you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's an interesting comment. I mean, in a way, what you seem to be saying is that, um, and this would be very much a Buddhist perspective if I'm hearing you correctly, that actually what needs to be done is first of all you have to own the anger. You actually have to see where it comes from, how it's generated, then kind of acknowledge that it's yours and the way you're directing it. But that often seems to be very true in psychotherapists, for example, that that's what you do. And, but there can be also an indulgence in it. And then from the Buddhist perspective, once one has done that, the letting go is then necessary. And so it's that, move, it's that next movement that's the important one. Of course, you know, when I said to you very early on, you know, sitting, we're all sitting here with our history. You know, we can either acknowledge those or we cannot. And part of that might be things like our anger against individuals, parents, and all sorts of things. But the purpose of acknowledging it, accepting it, loving it, in a way, um, because that's made of what we are at the moment, is then to move on from it, is to, to let it go. And I think that's the, the interesting move in Buddhism. It's always this relinquishing, dropping the baggage, not carrying along with it, 
changing the end of the story, yeah. That, okay, I've lived the unhappy narrative up until now, but the narrative can be changed once I've really, really understood how this narrative was formed. Now, that often, often occurs obviously at different rates for different people. But it's that reframing that's so important. And as you've probably gathered from much of what I've been saying this evening, it's, it's taking simple things like that, and in the Buddhist perspective, actually reframing them. You know, <coughs> what people are doing out there is not meant to irritate you. The irritation lies here. You know, that's the kind of just reframing the story. When you, know, you hear somebody banging on the wall and think, oh God, they're really irritating. I hate them <laughs> for doing it to me. And it's fine, actually, you know, try it, actually. I mean, I've really suggested, this is a really practical thing. This is not something you do sitting in meditation room. This is something you do sitting, uh, out, you know, going out into the ordinary world. You know, when somebody is doing something to you that you find irritating, try and think of what it is they're actually doing, what they're trying to accomplish, what they're trying to do in their life. And it might be just get on with their life. That's all. And they're not doing it to specifically single and target you out to irritate you or to make you angry. So it's always just you know, reframing the narrative and dropping it, dropping the old story. That's uh, important. And I think that's possibly the difference between psychotherapists and Buddhism. Pardon? It's a relative truth, yeah. It's useful, it has an ecstasy, and doesn't want to disparage it. I wondered what the, um, <coughs> well, sometimes my experience of successfully overcoming irritation is by, I'm not sure if I'm doing it, but it sometimes happens that the, the source of irritation actually becomes a source of a kind of pleasure. Because hmm. it's like a, well, an example is that there are people working on the house next door. There's a lot of banging. I was just like, the guards, you know. <coughs> and gradually this became like, I really got into the energy of it. And, you know, after that half an hour, I was really buzzing and annoyed. <laughs> you know, it's like incredible. Yeah. And I, I wonder if that was, you know, within the framework. Oh, very much yeah. so. Yeah, I mean, gosh, you think about most of what's going on in our lives is somehow. So in a sense, we're all masochistic. In a sense, mm-hmm. you know, we 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 take great delight in some of our pain, don't we? Uh, I mean, that's what's happening. You're kind of delighting in the feelings that are arising. Well, no, not all the time. Isn't it? Okay. I don't think so. No, because I'm not enjoying the the irritation. Mm. What I'm saying is that the, it's a bit like the crows, mm. you know, they're, they're alive and they're a source of living energy. Mm. And if you can transform the, the irritation, which is a, a negation of that energy, mm. into an active enjoyment of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. You're talking about transformation of the same energy. That's right, yeah. yeah. That's well, that's very much a technique that's using in not in what we're doing here, but particularly in Tantra. Mm-hmm. Of actually taking the... Um, what, what that, the phrase that's actually used is t- saying 
is actually taking the hindrance and turning it into the path. So you take whatever it is that, that is your irritant and make it part of the path because you see it in a different light. You turn it into something positive. That is quite different actually from what I was saying. But often, I mean, coming back to the point I was making as well, was that often what happens is we don't want to relinquish our pain, our irritation. You know, so you can almost, I wouldn't, delight is too strong, delight is too strong a word when I said that, but what I mean is you actually, it forms part of your identity, the pains which you have. And so actually relinquishing them is to relinquish part of your identity. So for example, if I'm an irritable person, and I get irritated with all kinds of things. This irritation is actually an essential part of me. And to give it up is enormous, you know, what do I put in the hole that's left? You know, I've got an irritation-shaped hole inside of me. <laughs> what do I fill, up, fill it up with? And so it's very difficult for us to relinquish them when they become part of our identity. Now, I think we see this very strongly, for example, with people who have physical illnesses and they turn the physical illness, or even sometimes the mental illness, for example, into their raison d'etre, <laughs> the reason for being. You know, this, is, this is me. I am you know, X marks the spot. I am this kind of mental health patient, or I am this set of symptoms that the doctor's told me I am. Uh, and that becomes the reason for being. Take it away from them, you just pull out the raison d'etre. Um, it's a frightening thought. Now, for us, often it's very different because, uh, well, actually, I was going to say it's not very different. It's just that we have different things that mark our sense of identity. Some of them can be our things like irritations and annoyances and angers and, you know, the things I joked about, my preferences, these and me. But they can also be things like our professions, our jobs. Uh, what we do in the world that gives us our sense of being. Um, any of you who've learned a, uh, another language will know that the first couple of verbs you learn in any other in any language is the verb to have and to be. You know, forget about the being one. Most of us associate it with the having. You know, nothing that can mean obviously not all the material possessions, but it can mean the possession of an identity which is offered to us or proffered to us through a particular role that we have. Father, husband, wife, daughter. And then we get into the professions. You know, ask somebody, you know, mostly, you know, often when you, people are bumping into each other, the first thing they ask is, well, what do you do? <laughs> you know, there's a, a first question almost. I mean, how often does that happen when you hear it at the sort of gatherings and social events and that? You know, what do you do? And it's almost as if the profession is equated with you. It's so deeply embedded in your sense of being. Somebody I counted actually when I was in South Africa gave me a wonderful answer when I actually asked that question. Um, we'd been talking for quite a while and it was actually at a Buddhist retreat. And uh, I said to him, you know, because he said he worked at the university, I said, what do you do? And he said, well, I play at being professor of linguistics. Now, I like the word play rather than the seriousness of I am <laughs> here. Because that's what we do all the time, isn't it? We play these roles. 
We can even play the role of the sick person. Play the role of the depressive. Play the role of the unhappy person, day in, day out. Yeah, so we're all playing roles. Yes, we don't. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I, I mean, from what, from what you're saying in terms of, you know, of this display, I mean, what you're saying is that, uh, what appears to be what you're saying is what, what we're engaged in is kind of behavioristic. I mean, almost like the Greek masks, you know, with the persona. That you split on the mask each time, you know, the happy mask, the sad mask, the angry mask, all the different masks that we put on. Well, it's only it's only involuntary. It's only involuntary in the sense of being conditioned. The conditioning is so deep that you can't help but respond in a certain way. Now, I don't know if this has happened to any of you, but have you ever caught yourself out and suddenly become aware that you're engaging in angry play behaviour? <laughs> That's what you're doing. You're suddenly aware of it. It's angry play behaviour. You know, I'm not... I mean, I'm kind of feeling it, but not so much so that it's just propelling me into it. You're kind of watching it. Oh, here I'm going through the motions. You know, here I can hear that there's a distance from it. Now, if you can see that happening, that's generally actually what's happening most of the time, only it's happening so quick that you haven't got that distance from it at all. You're not aware that you're playing the game. I'm playing being angry. I'm playing being hurt, abused, all the rest of it. Um, an actor will play lots of roles mm. and will realise that, um, probably comes to realise, or can come to realise that he doesn't have a character of his own, really. He's capable of playing all these roles. Mm. Does that get rid of the ego? Because it could. 
is that, but is, does that reach selflessness or is that something else? Well, if, if we extend the metaphor into the, in a sense, we're all acting in this world, although actually most of the time we don't know that we're acting. We're engaging in certain types of behaviour which have been conditioned in such a way that we, you know, through the propagation of a, of a self, through um, taught behaviour often, you know, from others, that we don't actually know we're engaged in a play a lot of the time. And I think that, you know, if one could see into that and see into that metaphor that in fact we are, in a sense, actors engaging in certain types of play behaviour, then I think we could see, possibly, to some degree of selflessness behind it. Because there isn't anything behind the mask. You know, isn't this where the Yatmashara meditation comes in very handy? <coughs> the Who Am I inquiry of advancement. Yeah. yeah, can do. I mean, I mean, you get similar things in Buddhism as well. Yeah. What is this? Right. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of question, which is to explode the myth of the, the solidity behind. So you could just. Uh, what is this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know how to respond to that, but I do want to say one want to say one thing, which is that and coming back to something I've been saying throughout the evening, it's by this reframing process that we can actually start to change things for ourselves. In other words, you know, something that appears to be outside, as the example I've been giving, of irritating us. Yeah, we don't perhaps need to go into how is this occurring, what is this, all those sort of questions. Just try reframing the narrative. What is this person doing to me? Or what are they trying to do in their lives, rather than doing it to me? You know, what are they trying to achieve? So in other words, it's, it's putting it into a different narrative context to help us see the thing in a different light, a completely different way. Almost turning it upside down that we can do. We can do with that with all sorts of phenomena, with ourselves and with others. Remember the, the <laughs> I hate to say this, it almost sounds facetious. The one topic of this talk is patience. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> because really that's what's at the heart of it. Because in practicing, you can't expect immediate responses. You can't expect by just completely reframing the narrative. You know, even if I've been doing it for two years, it's not going to change that quickly. Three years, four years, five years. You know, you just have to wait to see. Well, I'm just what the Dan seems to be saying seems to me to connect with what I was saying yesterday about determinism and mm. advice and liquor. Mm. In the sense that, well, I mean, one thing I've heard personally, advice to teachers is in response to this question of suffering is, okay, so you're going to suffer for the rest of your life. Mm. So what? Mm. That's the first of Shantideva's thing. Right. Yeah, forbearance in the face of suffering. Well, no. It's not really, it's not really forbearance because that's um, an active thing that you have to do. You have to practice forbearance mm. in relation. This is just about acceptance, which is, mm. I think, different. I don't hear the two as being much different to be quite honest. No. Yeah. I don't hear it. I mean, it's really an acceptance and a patience in the face of suffering that's going to happen. Yeah. That's inevitably going to happen, as I was saying, you know, when I was going through this. You know, things are going to happen to you which you're going to have no control of. Some things are going to happen to you which you're going to have control of and you can change. Yeah. But until you're completely awakened, Dukkha is always going to arise. Now, we can constantly rail against that dukkha, or to use your word, we can accept it. And it's acceptance, in a sense, is letting go of letting go of the expectation that it's going to go away in this moment. Because for most of it, it isn't going to go away. Well, maybe you might acceptance is too mm. proactive. Maybe there's just some quality of... Maybe, I don't know if you have noticed. Mm. Yes, I think, yes, I think that's what's coming from the advice that you mm. Remember, from the Buddhist perspective, although things will happen, ultimately they happen because of causes. And Dukkha has a specific cause. Dukkha has a cause through greed, hatred and delusion. And once we identify those, then Dukkha ceases to exist. That doesn't mean the events of the world cease to exist. You know, the happenings. But they cease to be Dukkha. That's the important point about it. So, it's not a kind of stoicism of something that can't change, because the, the, the ultimate message for liberation in Buddhism is it can change, the dukkha can be released. Otherwise, the whole point about you know, the Buddhist goal is completely fatuous. 
you know, it's that we always have to keep coming back to this. Whatever is, you know, whatever our position here is that all things are caused in the Buddhist perspective. There's no thing without a cause. You know, and remember the first phrase out of out of this, out of the Mahabha, is you know, well, I'll paraphrase it, it's a better translation. Mind is the forerunner of all things. It's our minds that are transformed. If nothing else, and this is what makes Buddhism completely different from Advaita, makes it completely different from all the other religious traditions, is that first and foremost, and probably in its totality, Buddhism is about one thing, mental transformation. It's about nothing else. And that's why the Buddha says, my message is limited. It's limited to dukkha and the cessation of dukkha. And to cease dukkha means mental transformation. Now, a lot of other religious traditions, um, certainly if you think of theistic ones, might say a certain degree of mental transformation is important. But it's not the ultimate goal of what those religious traditions are about. It's not really the ultimate goal really of Advaita, either. Mental transformation might be part of what's going on, but it's not the ultimate goal. And, but it is the ultimate goal of what Buddhism is about. Can I just <laughs> say, that, say that the, the big one, which is kind of uh, kind of written at the moment about this, uh, this thing seems to approach it. Um, well, okay. I mean, what I'm getting from a and associated teachings is there is no problem. Mm. Everything is perfect. Mm. Okay. What I'm getting from Buddhism is there is a problem. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah. In fact, um, as I put to you before, you know, within the tradition, the Buddha is a spiritual doctor. He comes and points out the problem. Mm. The problem is, sir, you have dukkha. Yeah, how are you going to overcome it? Let me suggest a, a regime to help. <laughs> and that's the Buddhist approach. If you don't think you've got a problem, in a sense, the Buddhist path isn't one that's really applicable. No, 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 that wasn't directed to you, though. That was a kind of general. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but it is a kind of... I mean, you can put that on a mindset, can't you? Hmm. Well, the thing is, I mean, I'll finish, I'll finish off on this, because I think it's a good point to finish. If, if for example, what you're saying is correct, then, first of, first of all, the poet, we, all of us, have to recognise that we have that problem. So hence the Buddha, the Buddha in certain of the suttas, will say, well, check it out against your experience. You know, if there is a such thing as dukkha, can you find it? I think, I would suggest that most of us in this room can probably find it, within our range of experience, otherwise we wouldn't be sitting here, doing it. Now, if that is the case, he's saying, then, like all things in this world, dukkha has a cause. We identify the cause, and we eradicate the cause, 
and there's a fact called Dukkha will cease. End of story for Buddhism. That's really what it's about. The mental transformation that will allow us to overcome the Dukkha, the problem that we have in our life. Just like, for example, I don't know, a drug addict or an alcoholic who doesn't recognise and have a drinking problem. You can keep on telling them they have this drinking problem, but they won't do it unless they recognise it in terms of their own experience, trying to give up. Now, just like the addict, we, if we're caught within this web of craving that the Buddha suggests we are, we're addicted. We're addicted to forms of behaviour which actually cause us pain. <laughs> you know, from, you know, obviously those lesser senses of pain to the greater senses of pain. Now, the question is, do you want to give it up? And that's we. Do we want to give it up? If you do, then the Buddha's path is a path, a practical path, I might add. It's not, it's not you know, sort of the philosophical dimension you grow later. The Buddha essentially is not a philosopher. He's a pragmatist. Yeah. He's giving you a way to get to help. As far as he sees it. And we're overcoming this one practical problem which blights most of our lives. Now that's quite different from many, many of the other religious traditions, including the other non-theistic religious traditions which are around in India at his time, like Jainism, for example. Jainism and Buddhism grow up contemporaneously. They have very close similarities. But in the end goal, the end goal is still quite different. Would it be true to say that um, the analysis of pain in these other traditions is something to do with separation? The experience of separation from sometimes, some, sometimes it's put. You know, it's, it's, I mean, again, one can't generalise because Indian tradition is so vast. But I'll just say this: is that sometimes in other traditions within India, pain is something that comes from external causes. Now. In the Buddhist attitude, things happen to us, but the dukkha, which isn't automatically associated with pain, although it's often translated that way, doesn't arise from the external happening. It arises out of something mental that we add to it, to the external happening. Remember that sutta that I talked about, the stone splinter? Yes. The Buddha gets a stone splinter in his foot, he experiences tremendous pain but no dukkha. That's really what it's about. <laughs> one final question. Oh, no, we can do one final one then. Uh, oh, well, I've got several, but I'll, um, I just wanted to take you right back to your, your comment on um, the incorporation of impermanence into uh, Buddhist views, talking specifically about Tibetan uh, Buddhist. Uh, Mm. I thought it was, um, I the last ten weeks, I thought it was quite uh, ironic that it took the Taliban <laughs> to uh, remind us of the impermanence of Buddhist statues. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. Um, I, I, I have several uh, 
It was actually interesting in relationship to those statues because it was actually some, some parts of the world that were getting extremely worked up and some Buddhists weren't <laughs> you know, about uh, those statues being destroyed. Um, in fact, the Chinese have offered to build a replica, haven't they? <laughs> 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 that sounds quite interesting. That's the Seymour Rock. Yeah, that's the Rock, yeah. But, I mean, can I, can I, I really want to make this final thing, but I think it's a nice light note to end on, because often I think these reframing narratives are encapsulated in quite simple things, and, and this is not the Tibetan tradition, but it's within Japanese haiku. And Japanese haiku is a wonderful way often, particularly Basha, uh, the greatest of the haiku writers, the one of the greatest, along with this and some of the others, are reframing um, stories for us and, and encapsulating a Buddhist message in them. And one of my favourites, I'll tell you about two or three of them, one of my favourites is, my house burnt down last night. Now I have a clear view of the moon. <laughs> <laughs> Or, a wonderfully beautiful red rose by the roadside. My horse ate it. <laughs> and here's the final one. I'll give you the final one, which is, uh, Come quickly by the fire, my friend, and I'll show you something beautiful. A ball of snow. Come quickly by the fire, my friend, and I'll show you something beautiful. A ball of snow. Let's do some sitting for 10 Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.